thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Good afternoon, morning, nighttime, whatever time of the day you're listening to this podcast. Um, bienvenidos to the Chicanx Latinx Student Success Center's podcast station. My name is Elisa Aquino. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the program coordinator at the Chicanx Latinx Student Success Center. And I have the honor to be here today with my colega in a collaborative event. If you would like to introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Elisa, for the introduction. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Ana Navarrete, and I am the program director for the Undocky Spartan Student Resource Center. We're really excited to share with you this podcast that we recorded earlier earlier in this year um, with the goal of just having a conversation about what the new Biden administration was hoping to achieve the first 100 days around immigration. So we had you know, experienced so much under the previous president. Um, and so for the past four years, all of the trauma that our communities experienced uh, was somewhat not relieved, but we were just looking forward to a new president and possibly being able to work with an administration to bring a solutions to what's happening with our broken immigration system. So in this episode, you'll hear a few of us talk about what has been ha what happened at that time. What were some of the goals from the Biden administration for the first 100 days? And we hope that in the near future, we will be sharing with you soon um, a more updated conversation about what is going on now and has the Biden administration kept up with their promise for what they wanted to achieve around immigration. And so uh, I hope you all enjoy this conversation and I uh, hope that it gets you all to think about the state of our current immigration system and what we can possibly do to address the system that is desperately needed to be fixed. Thank you, Anna. So without further ado, to enjoy the future of immigration under a new administration recording and stay tuned for part two coming soon. Bienvenidos todos. Welcome everyone to the Chicanx Latinx Student Success Center, also known as Centro Podcast Center. Uh, today we have the honor of hosting a podcast in collaboration with the Undocky Spartan Resource Center here at San Jose State. And we also will be recording with Barbara Pinto from the ILD, the Immigrant Legal Defense. And uh, so I would like to welcome everybody. If you can just start off by introducing yourselves and so we can know who is with us today. Um, maybe we can start with Anna. Of course. Thank you, Elisa. And thank you for having us today. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation and for uh, our partners here. Um, again, my name is Anna. I am the program director of the Undocky Spartan Student Resource Center here at San Jose State. Uh, we've been in this role for about three years, uh, working with undocumented students the, at the university. And, uh, and you know, these last three years have not been easy, but um, we are currently, uh, you know, as for myself, I've been working with undocumented students for about 10 years now. Um, it, it feels like forever, but, you know, we're, I'm going into my 10 years in terms of working with institutions of higher education to implement and create best practices to support undocumented students so they can graduate and, you know, just have as much as a normal life as possible while, while they're here at San Jose State. But thank you. Muchas gracias, Ana. Thank you for sharing. Um, and then if you could also, uh, you know, introduce yourself and share a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Hi, Elisa. I mean, thank you for allowing me to be here with you guys today. Uh, my name is Edres Tamudio. I'm actually a graduate student intern with the Undocumented Resource Center on campus. Um, at the same time, I'm actually a grad student at the Applied Anthropology Department. And I'm trying to work with, uh, with, with the center to try to create a peer mentoring program to foster a sense of community among undocumented students here in San Jose State. Um, very nice to meet you all and thank you for being here. Gracias, Eder. Um, and Barbara, uh, last but not least, if you can, uh, you know, share a little bit about yourself. And again, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day today to inform us a little bit more and for being here with us. Thank you. And thank you for inviting us as well. Um, very, this is a very important conversation to have um, with all our partners. 
And um, so I'm a managing attorney at Immigrant Legal Defense, and our organization is one of four nonprofit organizations that provide free immigration legal services to CSU campuses. Specifically, our organization provides these services to nine campuses in the Bay Area, Central Valley, and Central Coast, and we have been um, we have been providing these services to the campuses since 2019. And so it's been really great to work with the various um, DREAM resource coordinators and staff members um, on the various campuses to make sure that students, staff, faculty, and their family members receive these um, very critical and essential services um, so that they can focus on their education and other aspects of their life knowing that we can help with the immigration part of it and the legal aspect. So thank you for, for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today, Barbara. Um, and we can uh, get started with Anna. I know you have a few questions to start us off. Yes, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, so today we really want to just have a conversation about what's currently happening around immigration and what does that mean for our communities, right? Given that immigration is uh, a very diverse issue and it's a very complex one nonetheless, and it impacts students and their family members in various different ways. Um, we have students on our campus that are undocumented with DACA, so they have the ability, so DACA, for those who may not be familiar, is uh, short for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And so that has given uh, many young students uh, students the opportunity to be able to get a, uh, you know, have a work permit, be able to acquire a driver's license, and really apply for opportunities that typically are reserved for those who have work authorization. Um, but we also have students that don't qualify for that. And we have a lot of students who don't have a lot of uh, options for be, to be able to fix their status. And so looking at uh, policies, whether it's uh, federal policies or a, a permanent solution is something that a lot of people are interested in learning more about to see what is our current uh, government going to be doing uh, to address our issues around immigration. And so um, I, I welcome you all to, you know, for, for folks in the panel to just chime in if, you know, with, with any thoughts that you have around some of these topics. Um, so I, I wanted to start off with a question for, for you, Barbara, um, and it, which is a big question that we're asking ourselves right now with the, the new uh, president and the new administration, which is what has the Biden-Harris administration promised so far in terms of their immigration agenda or priorities? And what have been some of the bills that have been introduced so far to address immigration? Um, yes, this is something definitely um, since we heard about the election results that we're all really excited and anxious about and wondering if this new administration is really going to deliver um, on the promises it's ma it made and, and um, really change and fix and, and recreate a different system that we are now currently under. So some of the uh, promises that the administration has made, um, it depends on, so there are certain things that the administration has promised it will do and it will be able, certain things they have already been able to change and they have, um, the Biden administration was was able to, through executive action or executive order, make quick changes, other things that will have to go through litigation or through a regulation will take longer. Similarly, something that will have to go through legislation or Congress will also take some time. So recently, um, the DREAM Act was introduced again into Congress, as well as um, the U the U.S. Citizenship Act. So these are two major proposals that we're all watching and seeing what's going to happen. Um, the DREAM Act has been proposed before. Um, it's been over a decade of different proposals that have gone into Congress, but just haven't made it into, uh, that haven't made it out um, and haven't turned into a law. So we're hopeful, we're hoping this time around um, these proposals will will actually make it through. And we're hoping that not a lot of changes or amendments will be made to them that will make it, that will dwindle it down. Um, for the DREAM Act proposal, it establishes a path to residency and citizenship 
for youth that have entered as children into the U.S. and that meet some type of educational uh, med, uh, educational and or um, work component or some type of requirement with the armed forces and that meet all the other all the other requirements. For the big proposal, the U.S. Citizenship Act, that is that creates a pathway to citizenship for many undocumented individuals. Um, so that is that will have the biggest effect if it goes through. Um, it will be over 11 million that may potentially be that qualify for that. Um, so that will create also similarly a path to residency and citizenship for undocumented individuals. Individuals will have to meet certain physical presence requirements um, and other types of requirements um, to show that they, they qualify. The only downside to these proposals is that they're not inclusive. Um, they, you know, we still want to be able to have an option that provides relief to all immigrants um, and not just certain ones that Congress and the administration see as more deserving. And so we'll continue to advocate for that and hopefully that um, comes through. The, the bill also adopts a lot of different changes that are really um, powerful. It changes the definition of, of what it means to have a conviction. It changes the word alien in our immigration law system. It also eliminates several bars to relief um, and provides for the lessening of certain backlogs. So we're hopeful some you know, um, that we can have comprehensive immigration reform and we'll keep an eye out to see what comes of it. Yeah, thank you for that. And I wanted to clarify one thing for, for our audience, right? The, which is the, Cal the DREAM Act. Uh, and I say, I wanted to highlight this because we do have a state DREAM Act, which oftentimes gets confused with the federal one. And so it, it seems like, you know, the, the DREAM Act is something that a lot of le uh, legislators or uh, lawmakers believe could be something that could be easily passed. Uh, at least that's something, you know, we've heard over and over again about, uh, you know, who are the, the immigrants or the group of immigrants that uh, seem more appealable, right? To, to your point earlier that, you know, some of these bills are not inclusive of all immigrants. Um, and, and it sounds like the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 can't cover or at least... Um, uh, address the, you know, a much broader population. Uh, is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, what do you think is going to be the most realistic thing that the Biden administration could possibly do or, can, or that they can possibly accomplish this year? So I think the tricky thing with that is that our immigration system is a patchwork system. It's, um, there are different pieces that, some have to go through executive order to be implemented. Some have to go through a policy, um, a policy memorandum decision or a training um, decision, or some have to go through legislation and so, or litigation efforts. And, and so there are certain things, like I mentioned, will be, can be something quick and something that the Biden administration can quickly act on, but there are certain things that will take time and we may not see the holistic or overall effect until all these pieces are moving. So we saw with the Biden administration, they were able to make um, and release a lot, um, several executive orders and actions quickly right after inauguration that relate to immigration, for example, one on fortifying DACA, one on ending and rescinding the Muslim and African travel bans, another one um, restoring our asylum protections at the border. So. There are certain things that, that the Biden administration was able to do quickly, but others like doing away with public charge will take some time. Um, changing, definitely changing the culture of the agency isn't going to happen overnight. So even though there are new enforcement priorities, who um, I should focus on when detaining individuals, when deporting, even though those are in place, it will take time to to change the culture and to make sure officers on the ground are really implementing these new policy and, um, and training that they're receiving. And we're hopeful that with several ongoing 
litigations, even related to DACA that were ongoing during the Trump administration. We're hopeful that the Biden administration can step in in a certain way to um, put a stop to it if needed. So in either trying to um, settle the cases or try to put forth um, their position on the case now that it, there's a change in administration. Heather, do you want to ask the next question? Yeah, actually. Um, <laughs> no, and thank you for sharing all these insights. I mean, you have uh, way more a different view compared to us. Um, has the current administration talked about a pathway towards citizenship for essential workers? Unfortunately, even though that has been something that um, different advocates and members of Congress have brought up and that we've seen even happen in other countries, there hasn't been a really broad proposal that really covers all essential workers. There is in the U.S. Citizenship Act a piece where farm workers and agricultural workers would be eligible um, for paths of citizenship and residency um, like we saw in the 80s similar to what we saw in the 80s. Um, and of course, since that's a broad bill that covers millions of undocumented immigrants, essential workers will fall into that, but there isn't something specific that only targets essential workers, unfortunately. Um, even though they have really, essential workers this past year have really carried the burden of this pandemic in this country. Wow, you know, you're, you mentioned, um you know, the 80s here, Barbara, about, you know, how far back it's been since, you know, as a as a country, we've addressed um, immigration issues through actual reform. Uh, Evid, I'm curious to hear from you, you know, what hasn't been like, you know, going through school, you know, in the past, you know, I'm not going to age you here, but like, you know, since you started, you know, your education career, how have you experienced, you know, these conversations or these transitions around immigration issues? Um, can you share a little bit about that? And, you know, what have been some ways that you've tried to address those issues within the spaces that you've been part of? Oh, yeah, I forgot to say I'm like almost 30. So, yeah, I'm a little old. Um, <laughs> Which, which actually placed me in a position to uh, reflect on my experience. Um, when I came to the United States, um, I was lucky enough to experience most, most of the Obama administration, the two terms. Uh, so you could say that the larger discourse of Latinos within the U.S., um, it was not just the Latinos, right, but also those who are coming to the U.S., immigrants like myself, was more of a positive one. So to also consider, right, how the larger discourse of the U.S. in regards to Latino immigrants or just Latinos, right, but also how each city might understand this discourse and might either support that or not. And I was in San Francisco, so luckily in San Francisco, you know, addressing being uh, undocumented, just being public about it was actually a very positive experience. In addition, that San Francisco always had a lot of nonprofits to support the advancements of immigrants and their descendants by giving them resources and scholarships. So at least when I entered City College, being undocumented wasn't actually bad. It was a good thing. Um, and the Latino Service Network, um, they were really good at advising undocumented students, you know, what classes to take, what professors, you know, fill in the AB 540 form and letting uh, us know about it, of any scholarships that we could potentially apply and trying to understand our needs of what major do you want to do? What uh, four-year college do you want to transfer to? Or what uh, vocational degree you might want to take on, right? Um, however, of course, they were limited because they only help you to get out of city college or to graduate. Uh, and then I actually went to San Francisco State. I didn't really want to leave San Francisco on the account that, well, it's San Francisco. Well, <laughs> what I want to leave. Um, but I also had my mom with me, so I didn't want to leave her behind. Uh, and when I went to San Francisco, I also found very uh, supportive faculty uh, within sociology and the uh, Latino studies department who understood that being undocumented was actually a difficult, uh, you know, it was like a structural issue that it was not easy to overcome. But the way I was, I received support was like, okay, let me allow you, let me graduate a rec. So it was easy for me to disclose my status and for them to support me with at least letters of recommendation for scholarships or for grad school. So in many cases, I will ask questions, you know, my classes or clubs like, hey, so how do you address being undocumented? Uh, for example, I was part of uh, Hermanos Unidos. And while I support their mission statement, some of them will address the topic. And 
what is to be undocumented or how do we manage mixed mix status families, right? So I will say that San Francisco, at least in my case, has allowed me to express my concerns about being undocumented, um, but also how do we go around those issues to try to move forward, right, with education and or looking for jobs. Um, but of course, that is just very limited to my experience within San Francisco. Uh, I think that's what you're referring, right, Anna? <laughs> Yeah, no, just because, you know, and thank you for sharing that and for being open about, you know, your experience. And I, you know, the, the reason I asked this question is because, you know, it, it seems like, you know, immigration issues have taken a, you know, a whole new meaning in the last four years just because of who was president. But, I, you know, these issues have been going on for a long time, right? Like the the um, migration movement into the United States has, and, and the demographics have definitely shifted in the last 20 years. And yet we have not responded to that, to that shift. And, and, and the fact that we need to, you know, create a, um, a more humane system or process for, for immigrants to go through as they're seeking protections uh, into this country. And I know for many students who maybe don't have that community for them, right, with, whether it's at home or maybe here on campus, maybe they don't feel comfortable, you know, identifying themselves as undocumented, their experience may be very different. And so I'm, I'm always interested to hear from folks about how do how do you you know, how have you navigated, you know, college or your own personal experience? How have you tried to address some of these questions around immigration? Just because, you know, a lot of folks have been involved in this, in the movement in various capacities. And so it's, it's always great to hear about, you know, people's experience, whether they've organized, whether they, you know, organize amongst themselves as students trying to like share information. But, you know, these past four years have just been, um, really different in, in the sense that, you know, we, we've seen the, the type of anti-immigrant rhetoric that exists and what it can do to um, to further criminalize people at, at a new extent. And, and maybe that's just me, but um, but yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. I'm gonna pass it on to Elisa so she can talk, ask more questions about, you know, what has been happening in the last four years and what that has, how that has impacted our communities. Thank you for that, Anna. And and from what you were sharing, Barbara and Poseded, it sounds like, you know, there's been a lot of drastic changes within the last 30, 40 plus years of um, immigration policies into the, the U.S. So I think um, that leads me to my next question. It sounds like um, our current administration is trying to pull back on some of the immigration policies that were passed just um, within the previous administration. So, um, you know, what is the long-term damage that the last four years have caused for immigrant communities? And could an immigration reform alone do some of that damage? The damage that has been done these past four years have, are really, it's really incalculable. It's not only was there legal harm, not only was there legal harm, but there was also moral, emotional, psychological, social harm. And, you know, we see that with the effects of anti-immigrant policies and rhetoric and how that some of it is still continuing to this day, even though we're in a new administration. Um, and so it's a it's really a damage that as a nation we need to address and have some really long and painful conversations if we're serious about addressing it and fixing it. We have an immigration system that is rooted in, in racist and, and xenophobic policy. So is it it isn't just the Trump administration and these past four years. It's just that administration just brought to light how how broken our our system is, um, and hopefully now and and moving forward, um, we really have as a nation an opportunity to reimagine what a fair and just immigration system will really look like, um, because we've never had it. And so, how do we not only fix the system but really just dismantle it and create a new one. And that starts from a place of equality, equity, and really wanting to be welcoming to, to immigrants and not have it, um, not have it be with, not have a system that, like I said, the foundation that it's built on is just 
very, very racist and anti-immigrant. This is an opportunity to, to start to, to do that and, and continue to do so as a nation, to try to undo the, the various harms that were done. And thank you for that. You know, uh, you mentioned something that really stood out to me. And, you know, I think I definitely want to highlight that and echo that, that it wasn't just this last administration that has contributed to the damage, but it's been building off of previous years of damage from other administrations um, and that there is a lot to undo and unpack there. I, I do have a question on public charge. Um, you know, I've been hearing from students, um, even their own concerns on uh, public charge and how it affects their families. So this is where this uh, question comes from. You know, in what ways has the public charge affect immigrant communities? Um, and do you think there are going to be long-term effects to this rule, even if the Biden administration changes it? Definitely. I think this is also one that will take time to undo for various reasons. Um, you know, not putting the, the, I guess the legal consequence to a side, we really saw so much more fear and anxiety um, and distrust come out of the community, especially um, once this new public charge rule was implemented. Um, we, we have clients who were afraid and are still afraid of obtaining services, medical care, treatment for themselves and others. Um, we've even had clients that have come to us because they didn't want to receive a COVID support grant that was given was being given to them um, from a community organization or from their campus or even grants um, for filing fees to provide um, the money necessary to, for example, renew their DACA or apply for citizenship or apply for another type of grant, another type of application with immigration. And so the, the fear was definitely, was definitely there. And it also increased a lot with this new rule. And, and um, as an attorney, it was really, it was disheartening to see um, individuals not wanting to even take advantage of grants or scholarships because of public charge. We've also had several con consults where students want to make sure that the money they're receiving through the California Dream Act isn't going to impact them in the future, um, which is great that these questions are coming forward and individuals are checking with us as attorneys, you know, what are their risks? Is there any risk? And just make sure we, um, we can provide information and inform them and let them know what impacts them, what doesn't, so that they can obtain these services that they're eligible for. Um, but it, we wish it, it, weren't, it wasn't like that. And it definitely was less so um, before the Trump administration. And of course, with, with the legal consequences, we're seeing individuals that are eligible to to apply for their green card, but they're hesitant to do so, or there or there delays in their case because of related to the new public charge rule. So it has impacted our clients a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, I've actually, Barbara, if I make a comment, and please correct me if I'm wrong, right? Uh, part of the consequence, right, the impact of the public charge is that it reinforces the notion that immigrants, right, whether documented or, or undocumented, right, that they have access to no rights or that they have access to no resources, right? But I feel like maybe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, like there has to be a process of re-education that we need to um, think of, like how are we going to reach to our audience, right? And maybe a key term to start breaking this down is the difference between federal aid and also state and city aid. And uh, again, I'm, I'm maybe I'm, I might be wrong because the term is also is very complex. Um, but yeah, I think it has just reinforced the notion that now, you know, whether you're undocumented or not, you might have, you know, there's consequences if you're trying to abuse this, you know, these benefits to say this. Yes, definitely. We need more 
more outreach and more education to individuals, as well as um, I think also breaking down what this rule really is, because it makes it so it's harder for certain individuals to obtain their green card through, for example, a family member um, if they receive certain types of aid. But the aid that is listed are, are types of aids that undocumented immigrants, for the most part, aren't even eligible for. So it's really a policy that is created to to obtain the consequence that we see is to create fear and anxiety in the community and for um, immigrants to not obtain the services they are eligible for. Because the fear is so great that individuals, no matter what information they receive, they, they rather err on the side of being super, super cautious and not obtaining anything. Even after I've had some clients, even after talking to myself or one of my colleagues and just feeling like, well, no, I'm still not going to do it just in case. Because what if they change the rule? What if a few years later the administration changes their mind or this or that? And it's um, it's really unfortunate because we are seeing that individuals are making really tough decisions and impacting their well-being or their livelihood um, because of these policy changes. Actually, maybe... Um I, I just realized that we actually forgot to explain what a public charge is. So please, could you just <laughs> help us elaborate on that term? <laughs> of course. So public charge um, is something that has existed way before the Trump administration. It is something that the immigration agency looks into when someone is applying for certain types of um, green card application. So it doesn't cover, it's not something that's looked into for all green card applications, only certain ones. Like for example, if you're going through and obtaining your green card through a family member and what public charge is, it's a test to see if the person will be, once they become a resident, will they rely on the government for financial support and benefits? So will they be a charge or will they rely on the government or are they able to be self-sufficient? And so before, like I said, this, this already existed before Trump, individuals had to show they were adjusting through a family member that that family member, for example, um, had to be a financial sponsor and show that they made enough money to potentially support the, the immigrant unless if they needed it or to find somebody else to be a joint sponsor. And there were certain types of benefits that if you, if as an immigrant you did obtain them, it could impact your chances of becoming a resident. But what the Trump administration did is that they added more to this public charge rule that already existed to make it, um, to make it more strict and to add more, um, more benefits to the list of benefits that could impact someone from obtaining residency. They also made it so that the test was broader, that the immigration agency could take into account factors like the person's age, education level, English fluency, um, work history, all those things to determine if someone would be a public charge, which before that wasn't the case. So with the current public charge rule, the administration, the immigration agency can look at and see, well, you're an 80 year old person that's um, disabled. You have a higher chance of, um, of needing to rely on the government or you're a five-year-old that's not gonna be able to work for several years. You may also need to rely on the government. And so it breaks it down and takes into account these factors that um, are just, insane because they're obviously um, favoring someone who is young, able-bodied, um, has health insurance, is able to work, is able to work and receive a high-paying job that is educated, that is fluent in English and that sort of thing. Um, and so that's not what we want as a nation and we haven't been doing so. And so that's part of, one part was the the adding the problematic part was adding additional benefits, but this was also one of the more problematic aspects of that new law as well is all the factors that be, that can be taken into account that really ends up being a wealth test um, and really um, shows and what type of immigrant the administration was preferring 
Thank you, Barbara, for that. You know, I, as I'm hearing, you know, both you and Ed share a little bit about public charge, I, you know, I, I think about some of the students that I've gotten the chance to work with and some of the concerns that they've raised. And I'm also thinking about my family, right? You know, I come from a mixed status family where most of, all of my siblings ha uh, were born here in the United States. And so just seeing my dad's own concern around accessing healthcare for my siblings and how that can impact him has really taken away from an opportunity for my siblings to get healthcare access. And so I, I can only imagine how many more students are experiencing that or how many more families are experiencing that and going through it, especially in the middle of a pandemic. You know, now more than ever, um, you know, the tactics that we've seen from the administration, from the previous administration, uh, to scare people away from utilizing the services and also, you know, seeing cases in other parts of the country, uh, in other parts of the country that are not California and how they treat undocumented people for just asking for services can be very traumatizing. And so seeing those images, whether through social media, uh, through the news, um, just reinforces that fear of, you know, if, if you utilize the service, if you utilize something that's government related, that it could impact you down the line. And so um, I, I think I agree with you, Evan, earlier when you mentioned that there needs to be more community engagement and education around this topic. But sometimes, you know, fear is, is much stronger than facts. And so, um, so you know, it's, it's really concerning just to, to see how many people are uh, turning away opportunities that can support them and provide them with basic needs or basic services for, for them and their families. Um, so I, I want to pivot a little bit uh, to, you know, one uh, policy that is, you know, very, for lack of a better term, popular, right, amongst uh, higher education, which is DACA. Um, can you share, Barbara, a little bit about, you know, what is the DACA program and, you know, what are some of the changes to it uh, since December of this past year? Um, and how does, you know, and, and also if you can talk a little bit about, you know, the other part of the program, which is advanced parole and what that means for students. Of course. So DACA, as you mentioned, is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's, um, it's a program that was implemented by the Obama and Biden administration in 2012 that provided work authorization and protection against deportation and detention for eligible youth and young adults. Um, there are various requirements for DACA. There's an age limit. Uh, individuals have to show that they entered um, at a young age um, and that they've lived here for several years. And, um, and so the DACA program has been ongoing, like I mentioned, since 2012. And it has for lack of a better word, has really gone through just a roller coaster of changes, um, and especially in the past few years. We had the program fully intact from 2012 to around 2017 or so. And then once the Trump administration tried to end the program, various lawsuits um, were filed and those some of those are still ongoing. We were trying, trying to still protect DACA and continue the program. Um, and so we've had moments where there've been a lot of changes to the program where it ex where we have it fully back, then we don't, then we, for several years, individuals could only file for renewals and couldn't apply for the first time again and couldn't do advanced parole. But recently, um, as of December, now we're back to the original state of the program which is how it was in 2012. And so individuals can now apply for DACA for the first time again, and individuals that have had DACA can continue to renew it. And the third aspect of the program is that DACA recipients, if they're eligible, can apply for and obtain advanced parole, which is a permit that allows a DACA recipient to, that's, that allows a DACA recipient that is returning from an international trip to request admission back into the United States. So it doesn't guarantee their entry, but it does allow them to request to be let back in. And so individuals could request this advanced parole if they are traveling for educational employment or humanitarian reasons. And so um, our organization has been working with individuals so that they can apply for DACA for the first time. And if they're interested, seek advanced parole 
Um, and we're waiting to see to have us and other advocates also have enough of these applications on file so we can start to, to understand, um, see the pattern um, since we haven't been able to file these in, in, in several years. Start to see how the administration is going to deal with these applications, how they're going to process them and adjudicate them. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I want to add on because I always have to, you know, make this very clear for some of our audiences, right? The difference between DACA and some of our state policies, such as AB 540, uh, the California Dream Act. So DACA, again, it's a federal program. It actually doesn't influence a, you know, the university decision, at least not in the state of California. It doesn't influence the decision of a, a California university to determine whether a student is eligible to even attend the university. Um, in California, we have uh, several state laws that actually get to define whether or not a student uh, can qualify for in-state tuition as opposed to paying out of state. And so we really depend on state laws to look at what kind of opportunities and resources our undocumented students uh, have when they're trying to go to a California university or a, a community college. And so I just wanted to highlight those that, that difference because, you know, oftentimes DACA gets uh, you know, mixed in with other state policies. And a lot of, there's a lot of pre-assumptions that you have to have DACA to be able to go to school in California. And, and that's just absolutely not true. But it certainly does enhance the type of opportunities you can obtain while you're enrolled in school, uh, which is, you know, really great for those who are able to qualify for it. Um, I, so in, in 2000, I believe it's 2000, I, was, I don't know if it was 2014, Barbara, please correct me, uh, when, uh, the Obama-Biden uh, administration uh, passed uh, what was called DAPA, uh, Deferred Action for uh, Parents. Um, and so can you share a little bit about DAPA and is this something that the Biden administration would even consider at least bringing back temporarily while a permanent solution is created? Yeah, so, so some years ago we had, um, similar to how DACA was created, the Obama-Biden administration um, sought to implement the DAPA program and also an, an expanded version of the DACA program to allow more youth to be eligible for DACA. And DAPA, like you mentioned, would um, create a similar deferred action program that would allow parents of US citizens and lawful permanent residents be able to remain here and, and receive work authorization. Those two, unfortunately, those two programs, unfortunately, were not ever implemented and not able to move forward because there was a lawsuit out of Texas challenging their legality that in the end put a stop to them um, and did not allow them to move forward. Um, and so I think it'll be difficult to bring back that program in the same way, exactly in an identical way that it was um, created some years ago. And I think, but it still can come back in another way or another fashion. It, it, for example, like what the administration is trying to do now through legislation, through Congress. Um, so we're, I think it can take a different form potentially, but not in the same exact way as before. And I think the other thing about DAPA too that was controversial is that it really relied on someone having um, children that were born here or that had some type of status. And, um, you know, there are definitely certain individuals that, for example, don't have children or choose not to have children or can't have children. Um, or, and so it just, it, it did, only it, it did only provide benefits to um, a limited portion of our population of our undocumented population. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and I know we have many students who are U.S. citizens who you know have uh, come from mixed status families where you know this has been a question a lot of them have brought up if, if DAPA would still be a thing for for their parents. And so. Um, it's, it's a good reality check to get because, you know, completely forgot about Texas there. Um, but, you know, hopefully there can be a solution for, for our families because they, they very much deserve it. Mm -hmm. And it's also the same um, judge in Texas that's also reviewing 
whether whether the DACA program is lawful or not. So that lawsuit is still continuing. Um, and it's, it's worrisome because it's in front of the same judge that ruled the expanded DACA program and DAPA were unlawful. So mm-hmm. we're waiting to see what exactly is going to happen with that case. And um, hopefully the Biden administration is doing something about it, <laughs> even if it's not public, <laughs> publicly or so we're, um, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with that. All right. Well, let's cross our fingers here. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Barbara, I have, I do have another question for you. Now I kind of wanted to shift a little bit uh, to ask what does the Biden administration plan to do to address the immigration backlog that currently exists and have left individuals and their families waiting for decades to hear on um, the status of their family members? So to give you more of an example of uh, what I'm referring to, um, even a personal example in my family, my mother applied for uh a visa for my aunt (laughs) but that was in the 90s early 90s and it's been you know quite a few years now and um you know uh, I know that there's a lot of similar cases of other folks or maybe even folks who applied earlier um you know is there any hope that maybe uh folks who have applied you know many years ago might hear back in this administration That's what we're hoping, um, because definitely the backlog, especially with family petitions and um, U visa applications, they've just grown and grown and grown. And it's it's um, really insane how long you you potentially have to wait to to uh, to apply for status under certain categories. And so with the U.S. Citizenship Act, um, the administration is proposing that the Congress increase the numerical quotas that exist for those types of petitions. So we're hopeful that in doing so, that it'll help with the backlog. Um, but I think even better, there just shouldn't be quotas or numerical limitations. But unfortunately, the proposal is just to um, increase them so that there more people can benefit. Similarly with U visas, there's a limit as to how many U visas the immigration agency can give out every year. And so that has created a huge backlog. Um, it can be more than a decade that someone, someone's U visa is pending if they file now. And so um, increasing the quota might make it so they hear sooner on their petition that they filed. Another way to deal with the backlog is similarly with the U.S. Citizenship Act. If there is a broader program where millions of undocumented immigrants are eligible to apply for their green card, then that will help us so that they don't have to wait for other longer pending um, programs to be able to gain status. And another way that the administration is working on trying to address the backlog in a non-legislative way is to try to get rid of some of the obstacles that the Trump administration put in place to purposefully slow things down and have less and less people qualify for relief. Um, And so those were very much like anti-immigrant policies, um, public charge is one of them, trying to increase the filing fees, um, making it so making it so that officers have to conduct more background checks or have more interviews with individuals, things like that, that made it so um, resource intensive for the immigration agency to process a case that created a lot of the backlog as well. Thank you for that. That was very informative. Uh, Personally, I didn't even know there was a quota that, um, you know, impacted these delays and has contributed to this. So thank you for informing us. Of course. And the worst part that for those family petition quotas, that certain countries are even targeted and have slower or more delays, I guess, for lack of a better word. So, for example, China, Philippines, Mexico and India 
have their own limitations or quotas. And then everybody else in the world is lumped into one category. That's also another way that's it's a very so purposeful and racist tactic to to target individuals from certain countries and make it even more delayed um, and harder for for family members to immigrate. Thank you for that reminder, Barbara, uh, you know, making the point that these are, you know, tactics that are impacting other nationals. Um, I know that right now, you know, we're focusing on, you know, reaching out to the Latinx community, but the, the immigration issue is really a very diverse uh, you know, issue for for many people, and the way that they experience you know problems around immigration can be very different. Um, and so, I, I thank you for for reminding us of that. Um, I, I have a question for both you and Evid, and I'd, I'd definitely like to hear your input on this. But you know, there there are many undocumented students who are still trying to figure out whether staying in school, or, you know, college is worth it um, if they aren't able to fix their status at the moment. Uh, for example, like they grapple with the question of, do I spend thousands of dollars out of pocket for a degree that I might not be able to use? And so what advice do you both have for students stuck in this dilemma as they're, you know, as we're waiting for a federal solution to come down around, you know, people's immigration statuses? Uh, sure, I, <laughs> I'll try to answer that question. And it's actually a complicated question. There is no yes answer or no answer. Um, I guess I can share a little bit about my thought. When I was going to City College, right, and then SF State at the beginning, um, and this, and I spent three years in each setting, I never really had the idea that this country will produce a mass ref, uh, reform migratoria or immigration reform due to the fact that countries like this one, they do need cheap labor, cheap replaceable labor, and AKA, you know, immigrants, right? So in my years in San Francisco State, I was thinking, well, even if I were to get a bachelor's degree in any, right, or social sciences, STEM, you name it, it would be difficult for me to obtain a full-time job, right, in a particular sector. And even if I were to get a master's degree, I was like, ah, working multiple jobs will not make the cut. And, uh, and I also thought, it's like, should I keep going? And I was like, well, I have the benefit that you know, um, there are scholarships around me that don't require citizenship, right? Which, of course, that's a, a looking for those resources. It's a part-time job, if you name it, but that's the way I actually pay all my undergrad. You know, I had to write a lot of essays, but I pay City College and SFSA with no debt, you know, no nothing with that. So, and I was like, well, I could get a bachelor's here, and then I could get a master's, and then maybe return to Peru, because... And this is just unique to me. I mean, I came when I was 15. So to me, home is Peru. I acknowledge that I have roots in San Francisco because I do have friendships, right? But when I think of home, I also think of Peru. So when I was like, well, I can get a master's here and then just go to Peru. I mean, after all, I speak English and I have a degree from the U.S., which is worth a lot. And if anything, I mean, we meet internationals that actually come to the U.S. to get specialized degrees because when they return to their home countries, right, that's worth three times more getting a degree on those countries right so that perspective is more like a systems theory to say that very broad abstract um now of course daca passed and many of my uh, classmates were able to apply for daca and obtain daca and at this point and age um while you know there is uh you know biden's uh, trying to pass this law on what happens in the next four years right and i will say that you should spend time and money in your education because not, not just for purposes of personal growth, but that is going to increase the opportunities that you have for the future and also the networks that you develop in, you know, in these particular spaces, whether it's a community college or a four-year college later or a four-year college straight, right? It's going to open the doors. And it's actually a lot of who you know that can help you get a job or the experience that you need. Um, and... You know, and at the end of the day, also when I was in San Francisco State, I was thinking, well, you know, you can take away from me, you know, whatever I own, which wasn't too much, but you can never take away my education. That's something that I'm going to take to the grave and nobody's going to take away from me. Just, you know, I guess that's one way that I was thinking of it at the time. Thank you for sharing. I think that's, that's you know, that's very powerful. And I, and I think it, you know, sometimes it's really helpful to have examples of folks who, you know, who have been able to go about it. And so... You know, I, I know that there 
within like the uh, undocumented student movement uh, or the community, I know that there are those conversations happening about, you know, leaving the country and taking your education with you. Uh, I think I've seen some work being done around, you know, you know, highlighting the stories of folks who left off to Canada, right, to, you know, get their residency there and continue their education or their career. And so, so I, but yeah, so I personally agree with you, Ed, that I think investment in, you know, one's education is really, really key because no one can take that away, regardless of where you are in the world. Um, but Barbara, I'd definitely like to hear your your thoughts. You know, what advice do you have for students in this dilemma? Definitely. Um, I agree with, with what you both said. Um, and also, yes, this is a very, it's a, it's, it's a tough situation and, and um, really tough dis- situation and question to to deal with. Um, I also lived most of my life undocumented and when I was in college also grappled with the same question um, like what do I do? Do I continue you know what if I what if I'm never able to obtain status and that sort of thing um, And I think similarly for me, it was just breaking it down to well I I want to get an, go into higher ed. I enjoy going to school. Um, I'm really passionate about what I'm studying. I I want to learn and I want to be able to help others and um, sort of like I'll fi- figure out the the other part of it later and when it comes and hopefully I am able to obtain status and sort of moving forward from there. Um, and I think for me, it was also like, well, I don't, I don't really think I have anywhere else to go or to be. I came to the U.S. when I was two years old. So this is the only place I really knew. And so it was hard to think about that, to be able to think well, like, well, maybe I have uh, opportunities elsewhere. For me, it was like, well, I'm going to make the most of it here, um, get an education and sort of see what happens. That was the, the, the approach I took. And, um, and it was, it was I guess helpful. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that's a very uh, real thing, right? To just kind of take that leap of faith and, you know, figure, figure it out as you go. Uh, I can totally relate to that. You know, when I was an undergrad, uh, you know, being undocumented, not knowing what, you know, how the heck am I going to pay for college? I don't know, you know, what what, what this degree is going to do for me. Uh, but, but I think one of the things I've seen uh, and that I've learned is that one's immigration status is not stagnant, right? And so, there are various ways that people's immigration status can change, whether it's through a reform or through other means. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I'm really appreciative of having nowadays legal services embedded in our universities and in our campuses, because then that gives people an, an ability to access a reliable uh, immigration attorneys that can really break down, you know, your options. What are your options to be, be able to fix your status and just kind of take it from there? Because um, I think having that knowledge, or at least that uh, affor- you know reaffirmation that there uh, there are options, or there might not be options, can really help a student figure out okay, what will be my next steps if there are no options, or if they are. Um, and so I, I appreciate that advice, and, and also appreciate both of you for sharing that you know that part of your your story. Um, and, then, and go ahead. Interrupt. I just wanted to mention one other thing, is um, also we can together change what we think needs to be fixed. So if there isn't a path to residency or citizenship and we want to see it, let's collectively keep demanding it, keep fighting for it. You know, that's how the DACA program came about, um, was youth organizing and advocates uh, organizing and and demanding change. Similarly with the proposals that are now in Congress, they didn't just come out because, you know, Biden is pro-immigrant or it didn't come out of his own um, sort of caring sense. It, you know, it was because as a community, we've demanded change and we're not going to stop fighting until we get it. And so that's another part, like, let's also put energy into that. I know sometimes definitely it may seem like you're fighting against something, um, an administration or a government or something that you just, will never be able to, to win. Um, and I've definitely, as an attorney, faced that feeling lots of times, but I think we have to remember there's power in, in numbers and, and power in our, um, in our collective voice. 
Thank you. I feel like that's a very important reminder for all of us, especially, you know, as for many folks who are right now at home, you know, feeling like there's, you know, no way that things will change anytime soon. And at least I feel that sometimes, right, especially in the middle of a pandemic. But no, you're right. I think it's a great reminder that we have more power than we think we do, even if we're undocumented. And I think for allies, you know, even more power to them because they can vote people in and they can vote people out. Uh, and so I think this is, yeah, I definitely agree. This is a collective effort that needs to um, take place for, for us to create, you know, real change. And not just at the federal level, but also at the state level, because we've seen the the type of change California could implement, you know, through the advocacy and the hard work of so many um, social justice advocates and, you know, uh, attorneys, lawmakers, uh, teachers, counselors, and, and just the, the community behind our uh, immigrant uh, immigrant uh, family members and uh, our neighbors. So, so thank you for that reminder. But if you'd like to ask the the last question. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, what should people do now to prepare for a possible immigration re relief bill? Um, I know I'm biased because I am an immigration attorney, but I really do number one way to prepare is to talk to an immigration attorney, um, is to talk to someone that you trust that will give you correct information and inform you so that you understand what are your options now? Do you have options now um, so that you understand your immigration history better um, if you don't already, so that you understand what documents you need to start collecting or preparing, or if you have ongoing cases or issues that in, um, that have come up in the past, how to deal with them now so that you're prepared when you do need to file. So sometimes we hear from individuals that they don't want to, um, so they don't want to look into their immigration history or request their prior files or really look into what happened um, when, for example, they were a child and their parents may have filed something for them or things like that, that they'll just wait if, when there's a reform. But you have to think about when there is a reform, there is going to be a similar process that'll require an extensive application, documentation you'll need to show, you'll need to meet certain requirements and be able to answer questions about your immigration history, how you entered, what happened, um, do you have contact with immigration or not and that sort of thing. So try to resolve it as much as you can sooner rather than later um, so that you are prepared. And if there's something that you can file now that you're eligible forward for that, move forward with that now because we're not sure if anything is going to come through with um, the DREAM Act or the U.S. Citizenship Act. I hope something comes out of it, but if not, then you already started with with processing another type of benefit that you're eligible for. Thank you for that, Barbara. Um, any last comments or anything anyone would like to add to this conversation? Uh, I know like we're only touching the very tip of the iceberg here. Um, you know, there's so much more to, to, the, to these issues that we're not necessarily talking about. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested if any of you have any last things you'd like to share with our audience. Yeah, sure. I'm, you know, I just want to um, echo from what Barbara was saying, you know, that, you know, she recommends that folks that they check in with an immigration attorney. Um, and for our listeners, if you're an SJSU student, um, you know, there's a lot of um, support systems on campus, uh, specifically through the Andalki Spartan Research Center. And I'll let you like take it away. Um, but just know that there is support for you um, on campus. And um, you're, although it's quote unquote free, your student fees are already paying for these services. So you know, I definitely um, suggest and, you know, encourage folks to take advantage of these resources. Um, that are available to you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lisa, for that reminder. And like, you know, like Barbara had shared earlier on, you know, this partnership that our campus has with Immigrant Legal Defense has really been a, res you know, response from the state, you know, supporting the, the need of, uh, the need to provide legal counsel to to our community members. And so on campus, uh, our students were able to connect virtually with ILD, 
um, by requesting an appointment through our uh, our website. So it's undocuspartan, sorry, it's sjcu.edu slash undocuspartan slash legal support. And so it's free of cost to all of our students. Uh, Barbara and her team are, you know, really amazing. And in terms of like also supporting their family members, they also have um, ability to help with translation if that's requested ahead of time. Um, and of course, as long as folks are available to translate, you know, specific languages. And so we encourage students, you know, if they have family members who are undocumented, who have not had the opportunity to meet, meet with an immigration attorney, or maybe they've met with someone but never followed up or, you know, haven't been able to continue to retain that attorney, these services are available to them. Um, so make sure to connect your parents, connect your, you know, um, your siblings, if that's something, if you have a spouse or, you know, our, our services are available to them. Um, in terms of students who are seeking to apply to DACA for the first time or are renewing their DACA application, um, just this month, uh, Associated Students, you know, gave a very generous donation to be able to support our um, our students with their DACA fee. And so it's it's only it's meant for students who are registered at San Jose State. Um, and so all you really need to do is just fill out our intake, which can um, can be found on our website. Uh, we will publish it. And if not, just reach out to us directly. Um, our email is undocuspartan at sjsu.edu. And um, we, you know, we will be more than happy to connect you to the resources with uh, Barbara and her team and also uh, provide you with the link to uh, to be able to um, uh, apply for the for the funds. And uh, yeah, you know, we're trying to do our best here to make, you know, make this process as least intimidating for our students. And so, you know, we just ask students, like, if, if you do have any questions or if you have any concerns, just let us know. We're, we're here to talk, you know, talk through some of the, the, the services um, and really, you know, uh, make this process as comfortable and as welcoming as possible for, for students and their families. Thank you very much, Ana, Edel, and Barbara for you know, being here today and for opening up and even sharing on your own experiences. Um, you know, really appreciate that. Hope you have a great rest of your day. And to our listeners, we're still available, um, you know, virtually. So do feel free to connect with us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.